If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Seck. I'm William Saradet. And today we're going to be talking about... So, William, you and I are both kind of big TV consumers. Um, And today we're going to talk about, or we're asking the question to each other and to you, our listener, has the golden age of TV ended? So just to give a little bit of background, the first golden age of television was the late uh, 1940s through the late 1950s. And it was when television obviously started to really boom. Shows like I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone, Leave it to Beaver, The Jack Benny Show, The Andrew Griffith Show, like all of these cultural touchstones that like, you know, you grew up with or your parents grew up with or that that's kind of the the point where most of the world is right now. Um, Like, this is going to be a very American, uh, U.S.-centric conversation. There is a ton of amazing TV from the rest of the world, but just kind of by the nature of us being in America and obviously American TV being a very dominant force, that's what this is. So just to set a little expectation or parameters, we know there's a ton of good non-American TV out there, and we watch it. Um... But thinking about this second golden age of TV, there's there's some debate around when it actually started. Did it start in the early aughts? Did it start in the late 90s? Did it start in the early 90s? Um, and is it over? Wikipedia kind of clocks it as ending around 2019. A couple of people say it has ended in the last year or two. I think the pandemic threw everything for a loop. But this conversation's a little bit about how TV has really changed or solidified itself over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, with that, William, where do you want to jump in on this conversation? Because there's there's a ton of touch points that we can go from. We can talk about things like how network TV, the kind of tra- trajectory of that, um, how subscription services have really changed the landscape. Where do you want to jump this off? I feel comfortable positioning myself in terms of the generationality of everything. Um, we're both more or less millennials, Brandon. So that means you and I very possibly could have been there sitting in front of the TV when Friends went off the air, when Oprah went off the air, um, when Lost finally concluded uh, its Kafka-esque storyline. I would imagine that our impression of the scope of television and, by extension, our generation's interaction with TV did start uh, in in the living room, on the couch, uh, watching scheduled programming 
there's no on-demand involved. We're digital natives, so we've seen both sides of it. And I think it's interesting to see how uh, the narrative around, like, how our TV gets made, what kind of TV is getting made, and how the distribution is changing. It's interesting to see how those attitudes uh, are evolving in some of what we've read and just, frankly, what we're living through. Mm-hmm. A, a really weird early like memory that I have is being in my living room, like playing on the floor um, and hearing, you know, we had Nickelodeon on in the background and hearing that something that I wanted to watch was on it for three central. And I remember being like, what is, what is that? Like, what are the two? Not like, I know the time. But what is what does that mean? But I knew that three central was me. So it's like this early memory of TV and the the having to watch it when it was there. You know, I I, I don't know if you remember this, William, but I mean, I had to set the VCR to record. Like I'm not one of the TiVo babies that like didn't know what it was like to watch something. But we also didn't have things like HBO. We didn't subscribe to Showtime. I didn't have a lot of TV experiences until I really got older and really in the last, oh, once I got into college, but then also just kind of the last six or seven years once I got more subscriptions and really started paying attention to a lot of stuff. Um, William... uh, were you watching kind of network TV when you were a kid? Like, were you watching the stuff that was happening on um, CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, kind of that stuff? Because the late 90s, early aughts were some of the golden years. Uh, If we're going to put a period within a period, they were some of the golden years of network TV. Um, Even though ratings may not have showed it. uh, There were shows like, of course, Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, West Wing, Friday Night Lights. uh, NBC in the mid-aughts had this block of comedy on Thursday night, which was Community, 30 Rock, The Office, and Parks and Rec, which I've read books recently about the the television industry and I think the ratings at that time for that block wasn't so great, but looking back, those are three or four rather of kind of these amazing sitcom, but game changing comedies. Um, were you watching any of this stuff or what, what did you kind of have your eyes on in the late nineties, early aughts as you were growing up? Yeah, that's an interesting way to kind of, target what someone's uh, generational interaction with TV is or what they think of TV as being over the course of their life. We didn't, I didn't grow up with cable. Um, There was network television, of course, uh, in college, which is when those shows you discussed would have been uh, airing in my life. So 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, Even like The Office, to some extent, uh, The Office came earlier. But that period of TV, I kind of think as being like really the the crux of like the cord cutting moment in time. Those were pretty successful network shows, but maybe they're among the first generation of TV products that saw syndication more so like through streaming, um, even though they were produced in like the network television system. So I've seen a lot of that stuff, but I didn't watch it Thursday night when it was airing. 
I was doing homework or something else. Um, and that's just kind of something I wanted to mention, which is that, like, I think it's it's hard to explain to anyone who's very young or generally young right now that television used to be kind of more like cinema in that it was fairly tied to place, even though it's distributed all across the nation and across the world. You kind of had to be in your house in front of a TV plugged into a cable to watch it. Whereas now the water cooler moment of socially experiencing media together is more that like when a show drops on Netflix or on HBO Max, um, you can kind of watch the whole thing all at once. And everyone, you may not necessarily experience the storyline sequentially in the way that like, you and I would have as kids uh, in the in the late 90s. In the preparation for our conversation, I read a Vulture article from 2019 uh, about how it, essentially the claim of it is that Game of Thrones was the last show that we all watched together that kind of had these, what you're talking about, William, these engagements, these water cooler moments where uh, the show was released week by week and it was the thing that people were watching and people were talking about. And... I feel like part of the balancing factor of maybe having been in a golden age TV of TV or coming out of a golden age of TV with all of the pluses, there is something culturally that's lost whenever it's just a big library where people aren't paying attention to the same things. Like I, I I kind of want to balance this because I, I almost want to devil's advocate myself in this conversation. The, positive of things shifting to streaming and there being so many different avenues of production and access and everything else to people for uh, within the television industry is that these niche stories or stories that uh, cable networks may have thought were niche stories now have myriad outlets to pitch to and to get published on. Um, and we've seen that pop up in a, a number, I'm not going to name a whole lot of shows right now, but we've seen that happen with a number of shows um, that have then blown up and become really popular. Um, but with that wealth of catalog and library coming out, it means that people aren't paying attention to the same things. There might be random very specific instances maybe like how stranger things season four just dropped and maybe everyone's paying attention to that right now i listened to a podcast a media podcast that was talking about how you know millions upon millions of hours of stranger things have been streamed in the last week or so but at the same time I don't know, it doesn't have this slow burn like TV used to, so I think things have a the ability to be major flashes in the pan. Think about what's happened over the past few years that may even be culturally, critically, or uh, award show acclaimed, but we kind of don't hear about or don't talk about anymore. Things like The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, things like Squid Game, um... And all of these, I think both of those are pandemic era. So, you know, that could affect it also. But uh, William, tell me more about, like, do you think this slow burn is detrimental 
to it or is, is it just kind of all part of it it's like it's all going to be in the library anyway so it doesn't matter if we're engaging with engaging with each other about it if we end up engaging with the content itself there's something about the current moment we're living in in terms of like media production and distribution that I feel like collectively as a culture we're experiencing a backlash from the massive cresting of the on-demand system being able to watch anything as much of it as you want anytime on like and not even on like a TV you can watch it on an iPhone if you want um I similarly I recently was poking around on YouTube um I think looking for impressions on what was happening with Netflix's stock valuation um because it plummeted precipitously for like the first time ever and there was a, a talking head on YouTube saying like I think that we're over the binging uh, moment. And he echoed what you're saying, Brandon, which is that like something that might be considered to be culturally significant, like Squid Game or Stranger Things, can drop and then everyone can watch it immediately. And then next week, it's like not even a part of the cultural conversation anymore. People have moved on. Um, I, And so I don't necessarily mean to say that I think that Netflix's operational decisions are horrible and, and that's why they've lost money. But I think that there's something about um, what we've all lived through the past couple years in the context of the greater trend of media production and distribution that that shows like maybe we are kind of ready to get back to some kind of sitting around the campfire sharing stories sequentially a caveman kind of an attitude around narratives we're a little binged out what do you think brandon i i feel like part of this transition to the golden age of tv or there's also a term for it called peak tv which Maybe I'll start using right now instead of constantly saying the golden age of TV. Um, So I think part of this transition into peak TV has been that things shifted from sitcom singular self-contained episodes to becoming episodic. Um, It's obvious why many of the shows uh, that came out before streaming were self-contained episodes. Um, think about sitcoms like Everybody Loves Raymond or Seinfeld or According to Jim or How I Met Your Mother. Like in all of these, there are overarching storylines, but in many of them, individual episodes can stand alone if they're played if they're played by themselves. Um, so it's the kind of thing where you can drop in, drop out. It's uh, almost they're a little repetitive in that way because uh, you know in everybody loves Raymond you kind of have to continuously make the joke that his mom is overbearing just in case a new viewer doesn't know that from past episodes so it, it, in this in this way they fill time by rewriting some of the same jokes in different ways um and that's a thing that doesn't happen as much anymore because everything is episodic and it's one long arc. Um, I feel like HBO was a really big contributor to this. Think of things like The Sopranos or The Wire or G- Game of Thrones or True Detective, which I think was one of the most 
significant transitions in that it was this one big long story, but it was also like it starred movie stars. These were actors like Matthew McConaughey was doing a TV show. And that was like that was in 2014. And that was like, whoa, like, how is how is this happening? Um Things like The Leftovers, um, Succession, all of these HBO shows where if you dropped in on an episode, you'd have no idea what's happening. And that's an interesting change because, in a way, I think it's a lot more conducive to binging. Um, It's a lot more conducive to the way that Netflix just started dropping shows. Uh, Because if you watch... Those the other types of shows, the shows that rewrite the same joke over and over uh, to be more accessible to the audience who is watching them on reruns or watching them on syndication. I think those get a little grating. Um, like I've been watching Monk uh, with Tony Shalhoub, and it's it's a really good show in many aspects. But they make the same joke about his phobias over and over. And it's like each episode is self-contained. So it makes sense to a new viewer. They'd get the type of person that Monk is. But watching five of them in a row, it's very tiring in a way that watching the whole arc of The Sopranos, you know, watching five episodes of The Sopranos isn't. Um, William, what do you think about that? How is the episodic thing changed how we view it like you said watching five episodes of a serialized um sitcom highly structured formatted show like monk uh everybody loves raymond that also applies to a lot of legacy children's programming like spongebob or even something like ren and stimpy um it's a lot of similar gags over the seasons and if a show is popular enough to make it to nine seasons it's like you're not necessarily watching it for i don't know riveting intellectuality it's more of like a comforting uh after work after school on the couch maybe like a snack um you want to like live in this environment with these characters and you want to know that there's going to be new episodes and that um the economy is stable i guess uh that was kind of always my experience of watching TV as like a teen coming home from school and running through the entire Seinfeld catalog episode by episode because, you know, TBS would deliver a new, not a new episode, but an episode I hadn't seen every single day. Um, And after doing that for a couple of years, I remember being like, there must be somebody who has like a fairly complex spreadsheet of randomly showing these episodes, but in a way that, like, it doesn't, they don't overlap. That's, I totally remember watching, like, I think it was Everybody Loves Raymond and Home Improvement and those on TBS. TBS was, like, the king of syndication in, like, the mid to late aughts. Um, Compare that with, like, the recent uh, era of television that could be coming to an end, I'm, I'm not certain, but where the pressure on the network's and I guess the studios as well, the TV studios, is to produce, like you were saying, Brandon, a film that's 32 hours long, you know? Or um, in the case of, like, HBO, they tend to be shorter. I just finished the new season of Hacks, which I found to be very enjoyable. It's, like, eight episodes long. Um, Girls, 
uh, Succession. These are not... If you compare that to, like, like if you look up Gilmore Girls, or if you remember the box sets, uh, heaven forbid, um, there's, like, there's, like, dozens upon dozens of hours of content in um, Gilmore Girls per season versus, like, I don't know, 10-ish episodes per succession. Um, and I think it's an interesting question to ask, like, well, how much how much quality or quantity is contained in either of those things? And I think the answer is, like, a ton. It takes a ton of work to shoot 24 episodes. I'm sure it took a ton of work for them to uh, stage the, like, Davos convention lookalike for Succession. They got to fly all those people out and hire extras and fancy clothes and stuff. But Succession is like a high stakes, gripping, teeth clenching movie about the world's elite. Gilmore Girls is like a manic pixie dream girl fever dream that you can kind of live in for an hour and then come back a week later and do it again. For weeks and weeks and weeks. William, you brought up something that I've been thinking about, which is there used to be this really big pressure in network television to continue popular shows. Um, And I feel like that led in many instances to a sacrifice in quality because inevitably there would be some sort of contract dispute or someone would fall off the show or it didn't didn't stay the same. Um, But it seems like these streaming platforms they have a different kind of need for fill of content like they're they do have to feed the furnace but it's in a different way than network tv has had to feed the furnace and it seems like streaming has so many projects in production all at the same time of course i'm jumping all the streaming networks together but bear with me shows don't get beaten to death anymore or at least they may not get beaten to death as much as other shows did i'm thinking of very good shows which are as you mentioned shows that only have like i think like six episodes per season um specifically two that come to mind are fleabag on amazon and dairy girls which you can watch on netflix both of those shows two seasons i think six episodes each tight good didn't lose their stride and that's it i think both of them are done um and this is something that it it just it's not something that used to happen um william have you seen streaming shows get beaten to death have you seen streaming shows that you think you're just kind of like oh they shouldn't have kept doing it when you ask that question what comes to mind is kind of like i think youtubers have that pressure to sort of exist in perpetuity as, for one, like a small business owner, but then also a media personality of their own making. Um, And I think that there's a weird, like, pressure to not really vocalize that because it may not create relatable content or it might just kind of come off as, like, insider knowledge that the viewer is not looking for when they get home from work. That's another component of our media landscape now, which is that there's more access, there's more distribution, there's more channels. The like surface area of the media economy is unfathomably massive now, um, but there's definitely like caveats and pitfalls. William, would a, would a fair concrete example of what you're talking about, just to kind of ground it and for people who may not be as YouTube savvy, um, would a fair example be something like 
people who do prank videos. I, I think of people like Logan and Jake Paul or like any of those people, how they kind of have to always constantly level up their pranks and everything gets more and more intense because the algorithm and their viewers and everyone like you can't do a do a prank or a video where you're like jumping off of a hundred foot waterfall and then shoot a video of like you putting a whoopee cushion under someone's chair. Like those things don't if people would be like, you did that. Why? Why are you doing something so lame? Is that like a fair thing of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think you're totally onto something. It's like there's kind of an impression that on YouTube uh, that you can kind of do something silly and crazy and then you'll get famous and then voila, now you have a career. But also like the relationship between the creator's mind figuring out how to make that happen and like the logic of the algorithm um, also creates sort of the opposite of that. Uh, One of the Paul brothers, I get them mixed up, had that uh, snafu where he went to the Japanese uh, suicide forest and filmed it. He got a ton of backlash for it. And of course, his PR crisis management of that was to apologize and say he, you know, he he didn't realize that was inappropriate. Um, he's learned his lesson that it's not okay. But if you were to like talk to a TikToker or someone who has not hit that uh, crisis mode yet, they're absolutely trying to think like, what is the weirdest thing that like the internet has not seen yet? And what stunt am I going to pull to create, you know, that legacy for myself that I'm one of the, the most interesting people on YouTube? You just can't do that forever. I mean, artists also know this. There is something to be said for like finding your oeuvre, finding your signature, and then kind of working within that so you don't have to put yourself at risk of like booming and busting. I like that you mentioned uh, apology videos to an extent because I feel like apology videos are also this weird micro cosm micro ecosystem of exactly what you're talking about on inst- on YouTube. Um like it's someone would do something and then they'd post an apology video, but in that apology video they'd say something weird or wrong. So then they'd post another apology video that's even longer but this time they're bawling hysterically. And it's like it's it mirrors their other content that like the first one is normal and then the second one's wilder then the third one's wilder then it just it's it's a micro ecosystem of the exact same thing then they got to reset and pull back uh jeffrey star has is maybe the patron saint of this cycle um i do not necessarily suggest that you go out and look at jeffrey star's content but um it's a pretty good example of someone who has like it seems like they've collapsed their kind of like emotional quotient onto their media celebrity. And um, Jeffrey will promote his makeup brand. Uh, he'll do something crazy, like go to a one star reviewed tattoo shop and see if he can get a tattoo there. And then um, something in the zeitgeist will have, will have bit him in the butt and he'll have to go on, uh, on his channel and say for, you know, 30 minutes, I'm so sorry. Uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't have done that. I apologize. And then the cycle continues anew. William, have you seen a lot of 
YouTube to TV and using TV in a very broad to include streaming, a lot of YouTube to TV crossover. Like there were people in the early aughts who were in the early stages of YouTube, uh, like Derek Comedy, which involved Donald Glover, who then was hired on uh, uh, writing at 30 Rock and then obviously acting on Community and now show running Atlanta. But Outside of that, I'm trying to think of YouTube to television crossover, and I feel like a lot of times YouTube stars stay on YouTube unless it's like, you know, they were part of a comedy troupe or something, much like Donald Glover. Yeah, for all of the power supposedly generated by um, YouTube as a platform for creating, for giving people the ability to create their own media personality... um, it still seems like the gatekeeping is very strong. Um, I think Donald Glover is a good example. Uh, there's also people in music like Justin Bieber and Troy Sivan. Uh, but, I mean, there's there are uncountable amounts of people on YouTube that have their niche channels where they talk, sing, dance about whatever genre is their jam. And they are not getting picked up by studio executives. Um, there, I don't think that there's a ton of crossover, and I think we've been alive long enough that your average person understands that, like, just because you made uh, a YouTube or even a TikTok, maybe, you're not necessarily going to become Kelly Clarkson. It, it's a pretty regimented system of, like, you know, just not get, not getting called back. William, I want to circle back for a second. Uh, earlier, you mentioned SpongeBob, and we talked a little bit about cartoons. Um, I feel like part of the last, I guess you could say the last 20 years, has been the transition of cartoons not just being for kids anymore. Um, and this is something that's happened for a long time, like, you know, anime has these episodic story arcs and is for adults and children and it's accessible. Uh, But the American production of cartoons for adults, I think has been part of this peak TV period. Um, And it's, it's really unique because it's maybe a little more in ideology than in, uh, than in the physical production of it. And what, what I mean by that is, Part of peak TV has been the fact that shows look more professionally shot now. We alluded to this earlier. They, they look like movies. They aren't interrupted by act breaks. Um, they're shot just using a- amazingly high quality, on amazingly high quality cameras and materials. Things like Marvelous Miss Maisel, uh, Breaking Bad, True Detective, like all of those. Cartoons are going to always look like cartoons more or less like it's, but it's the ideas within them that make them different. Um, but the cartoon for adult movement has been something that's been really interesting. Of course, the origins are like South park and family guy, 
But then Nickelodeon came out strong with things like Avatar The Last Airbender. Fox has been really good with like Bob's Burgers, of course, The Simpsons, that long legacy. Um, But things like Rick and Morty, BoJack Horseman, Big Mouth, like Netflix came really strong out of the gates of it, too. Do you watch any of these? Like, what do you think about the cartoon for adult movement that's happened? And does it where does it sit within this idea of the golden age of TV? Yeah, that is a super uh, interesting topic that I I do care about. Actually, Um, I used to be I wanted to be an animator growing up and I just couldn't figure out where to find uh, access to learn how to do that. But so I read about it a little bit and I watched a ton of it. I see what you mean, Brandon, by like the kind of the curve of the trajectory of the way animated shows look, maybe by an untrained eye seems relatively consistent. Although I would say with most of the shows that you mentioned, um, I think there's been a a fairly swift uh, development of animation programs per show to expedite the production of the shows. Um, South Park famously was made using stop motion paper cutouts initially, and then they pretty immediately developed a program that has like an animation library of set shapes, characters, uh, mouth shapes for each vowel sound that can be plugged in. Uh, which is partially why South Park is famous for producing an episode like the week that a major global event happens. Um, Also, Bob's Burgers, I was watching, this was years ago, and I was thinking, as I was seeing it, I was thinking, I bet this show actually is modeled using 3D uh, figures, and it's cel-shaded and kind of like um, set at a frame rate that makes it appear as if it is like cell animated, but I would bet that it's not. Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, which was on Cartoon Network in the mid-2000s, like was one of the first TV shows, children's network TV shows that shifted entirely to Flash um, and is not not like hand-generated in any way. And you can kind of tell when you look at it. Yeah, the Lego movie... I believe is similarly uh, 3D animated, but there's a post-processing effect they put on it to make it look a little more staccato in the way the frames play out. So anyways, I, I rambled on the sort of uh, production component a little long, Brandon, but um, I think that the the history of animated shows kind of being like considered for children and then like as a novelty, they'll be produced for adults is possibly older than it is new. I think you could look at like the history of manga in Japan um, being by market, being like extremely segmented, and there are adult manga bookstores. I'm not talking about triple X content. I'm talking about like slice of life family stories. Um, here in the states, we might consider it to be something that teens like, and there's certainly manga and anime programs uh, produced for that audience. But I think um, for the history, for the duration of its history, it's actually been a pretty open-ended medium by like demographic. Were you like a Simpsons household? Did you like grow up with it? I had much more of a Nickelodeon household than an Adult Swim or Fox household. Um, So 
it, it was a little, I mean, even some things on Nickelodeon were a little more geared towards adults, but they were definitely, they, it definitely skewed towards kids. Um, I think my parents aren't necessarily big cartoon people, like they like it okay, but we were much more of, uh, of the genre that we're not talking about right now within this conversation because it's, Whenever it's happening, it's kind of trash TV. We were reality show people. So we watched Survivor. We watched The Apprentice, The Amazing Race, The Celebrity Apprentice, you know, all of those things. That was one of the most shocking cultural shifts at that time for me. Um, At church, uh, people would be talking about Survivor on Sundays. And I just thought... Um, I come from a, a relatively religious, a relatively pious part of the world. I just thought, like, I can't believe that this community is not only tolerating, but, like, actively interested in the sensationalism that this genre of programming, I thought it would, I thought it would be a flash in the pan um, as, as a little kid, which doesn't really mean a whole lot. But it's turned out to be one of the biggest pillars of, of, programming um william part of what you're talking about is what i think i've really noticed throughout the last 20 years this pivot in cultural attitude towards television um the fact that uh, the fact that people in 2000 in your church were talking about survivor like is significant and i feel like it's only gotten it being tv in general uh has only been more accepted since then um basically i feel like and this has definitely been true for some of the past 20 years uh but it used to be the idea that watching tv wasn't a hobby you know it was a thing that like a caricature of a slovenly person did like laying on the couch and watching tv all day but i know a lot of people who are amazingly smart, intelligent, intuitive people who spend a fair amount of their time consuming television. And they're not always watching documentaries or they're not, they're not always consuming this high-minded programming that used to be the pinnacle of like what intelligent people paid attention to. They're consuming the dirty a cartoon Big Mouth on Netflix and they're consuming The Leftovers on HBO and they're merging all of these things we're talking about today and some of my friends and myself included will watch Love is Blind because it is trash TV and you can talk about it and it's easy to watch and I I think there's more of an acceptance just a cultural acceptance around television in all of its various forms. Well this is maybe a fleeting opinion. I don't know if it reflects my overall lifelong take on this stuff but lately I just I do feel like we're kind of spoiled for choice um it's not that like there's nothing good on tv anymore or that um everything has changed so much it's nothing's like the way it was I just I just think there's so much (laughs) to see and I think that we've if you're listening to this, you've probably watched a million hours of TV news and movies. And I think that there's just too much for us to parse through. Yeah. Well, and that's definitely a very quick argument for the golden age of TV being over is the fact that everything is becoming more fractured now. So everything used to be on Netflix because every 
one didn't have their own streaming service. So you could watch anything you wanted, more or less, on Netflix. And now you have to subscribe to 10 different things. And it's becoming more like cable used to be. So I think these next five years are going to be really interesting to see. I, I too, am pretty interested to see what consumer behaviors hold out in the longer term and how that shapes yeah this weird kind of like uh i want to say false plurality of tv which is not exactly true um not all of these uh kind of expensive streaming services are gonna stick around and it'll be interesting to see like what's new what's big and what's next and with that uh, that's our art dirt for this week. Thanks for uh, bearing with us for an art dirt that doesn't explicitly discuss art, but you know we have those occasionally because we're paying attention to many larger things that are affecting culture in many larger ways. And frankly, we also like comedy and TV and drama. Um, and with that, we will see you next week. We'll be back in two weeks with another art dirt. And until then, uh, we recommend you go see some art and also watch some TV. Go see some art. Watch some TV. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.